Hello, I'm Thomas Cam, and this is Making Tracks Podcast, where I explore the life story behind a song with the artist that wrote it. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the meaning of music. This week, I speak to Andy Cato of Cruv Armada about the writing of their first hit, At the River. We also discuss his first experiences of dance music, playing with his jazz musician father, his transition into farming, and the parallels between farming and songwriting, tapping into a creative force beyond our control. The first time we met, actually, uh, we happened to talk about this song, and it's perfect for the podcast because the podcast is about stories and how stories blend into music and into your own story and this song sits at a very interesting time in your life and about the transition into you I guess breaking out as Groove Armada and it's a fascinating story but I'll let you tell it. Yeah well the song uh, well, I suppose we should give it its name the song is At The River and um it came about well like all songs I suppose it was spectacularly uh, unlikely to, to, to exist uh, and it was, I guess it was about 96, and me and Tom... That's the year um, I was born. <laughs> was it? Oh, God. Oh, dear, that's a bad start, isn't it? Anyway, time marches on, but yeah, it's about 96, and, and me and Tom, Tom being the other half of Groove Armada, mm. we were uh, in London, and we both moved to London having DJed. Uh, he was DJing up in Manchester, I was doing sort of on this kind of early house music free party scene uh, around the UK. And we ended up in London and um, and we were just trying to make things happen basically. And, and we ended up um, meeting via my then girlfriend, now wife, Jo. And um, and so we were, we were doing some parties together and uh, we'd, um, with some other friends and the parties were called uh, Groove Armada, which was actually stolen from another friend of uh, of Tom's uh, and Joe's. Uh, it was called uh, Joe Mace, and he was running parties up in Newcastle um, when he was at university up there called uh, uh, Captain Sensual at the helm of the Groove Armada. <laughs> and that got shortened to uh, Groove Armada to basically to save on printing costs, really. Um, so we were doing these parties in, in what was then uh, a very run-down Shoreditch in the east of London. Uh, all the sort of warehouses, which are now a million quid a, a square foot, were sort of derelict. And there was a very inspirational figure at the head of all that who was called Tim Lovely, and he had a record label called Tummy Touch. Um, and it was um, a kind of a continuation of what was a very lively funk soul disco scene uh, where, where Tom had come from. Uh, it was based around Cambridge, but the likes of sort of DJ Harvey was probably the most famous export of that of that scene hmm. anyway so we were doing these parties for Tommy touch and um, and we'd done a couple of 12 inches in in my bedroom studio I was living down in Clapham then on Cato Road which is where my name comes from and um, uh, and so yeah we'd be making these sort of you know quite sample based disco and funk tunes and Tim lovely um, basically to promote these parties said why don't you just go off for a week and make an album 
and um, and and so that's what we did. And for some reason, and, and that is lost to the mist of time, we we hired a uh, ironically actually a national trust. It's come full circle. A, a national trust holiday cottage somewhere up in the in the Yorkshire Dales. I don't know why we did that, and neither of us can remember. It's a why very we did far that. cry from the usual environment, right? Right from the the city, the heart of the urban, into the countryside. It is, yeah. I don't know what the driver, but that became a theme, like for all future recording, really, up until four or five albums in. That was the thing that we started. That was the thing that we did. I don't know why we did it for the first time, but luckily we did because we went to this cottage that was in the middle of nowhere, and um, there was a little village shop that sold Boddingtons, which was uh, uh, the, the bitter of choice at the time because it had a dodgy widget in it. God knows what was in there, which gave the sort of bitter its nice little head as if it was a draft pint <laughs> and they sold uh, potato waffles and that was basically the the, the diet for that week um, and the last time we went to that shop um, to get the bodytons and the waffles there was a, a, a basket of CDs on the on the counter bargain 50 pence CDs and the one that happened to be at the top was sounds of the 50s Americana uh, and I thought, oh, yeah, I threw it in with the with the with the waffles, thinking there's got to be a sample on there somewhere. <laughs> and on there was the was the tune um, called "Old Cape Cod" by Patty Page, which forms the uh, which is where the vocals are from. Mm. So when we got that back, it didn't really sound like that promising as a tune, but I just thought the chords were really nice. So um, so I copied the chords on this little keyboard we had, and uh, I had my trombone with me, mm. coincidentally, because I was doing a jazz gig, which is what I was kind of living off at the time, when I got back to London. And so I was practicing over these chords, and that's when the kind of melody that became the trombone melody started to, 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 to sort of emerge. And uh, we thought, well, that sounds really nice, but we had no microphone with us. And luckily in the cottage, there was a, a, a hi-fi system with independent speakers where you could pull the wires out the back. You had these sort of little red and black catches that you could attach the wires to. And uh, my amateur physics knowledge was enough to know that microphones and speakers are basically, basically the same thing, but you know, in, in, one forwards and one backwards, if you like. So I sellotaped on the wires of this speaker onto a guitar wire and uh, and that's how the trombone was recorded. So that gave it a kind of, you know, sort of Louis Armstrong era mm. sound. And without really much else, the, the thing just kind of fell into place and, um, uh, and it, it was just this really odd blend of the sort of brass band world where I'd come from. Mm. Uh, mixed with the kind of spiritual blues world that I'd always, um, the kind of music I'd always played with my dad, which is very much the style of the trombone riffs. And that's where the title of the tune comes from. There's, a, there's an old spiritual that we used to play together called At The River. Mm. Um, uh, mixed with this, yeah, kind of 50s easy listening. And it's a, and a bit of kind of like 303 style bass line. So it is a, is a spectacularly unusual and probably uniquely British blend. It sounds like a real alchemy of things, like you said, plucked out of the ether, like you couldn't possibly uh, have predicted or, or tried to create that. Um, no. And even no. the recording style seems to, like, of course you had to have no recording kit and, you know, make this rudimentary recording thing. I think, um, yeah, like you say, it adds to the character of the thing. Yeah, yeah, it does, and it's, it's one of those ones where when it did come together, uh, we'd made a, a few tunes that week. In fact, that we made the tunes that became the album that was called Northern Star. But with that one, uh, it was dat, dat tapes at the time. That's what the 
the masters were recorded onto. And with that one, before we set off uh, to head south again, we, 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 were, we were in two cars for some reason. We must have come from different places, I can't remember. But um, we made two copies and it was very much like you take a copy, I take a copy in case one of us has a crash, because that one's a good one. Funny hearing it again, yeah. I've not heard this for a long time. It became, of course, a very high-pressure trombone moment for all the live gigs. Because that the high note in there is high. And um, and so, uh, yeah, and it was always like second to last tune, out the river, super styling is what we closed with. And so you sort of, I'll be playing bass or, or piano or whatever all the way through the gig, and then you just got to, pick up the trombone from cold and, and hit that note and it's a note you can't get wrong and I have got it wrong a few times and when you get it wrong it's really bad you know it's one of the the the, uh, the things we did with Groove Armada from the beginning was that we said like we're actually going to play dance music live properly live and uh, that wasn't really happening at the time you know most sort of dance acts were doing like wicked light shows with um, either synthesizers that were plugged in or or literally just a playback situation and so working out how to play dance music with a band that sounds kind of fat enough to compete with the dance music that's all around it was a torturous process. And we had some shocking, shocking experiences uh, trying, to, trying to work it all out. But when we got it right, it became our real calling card because there's a real magic about the fact that it's super tight and heavy, but it's actually happening. And it's different every night. And it's got all that you know, vibe you get from human performance. Was that blend of live and electronic stuff, was that something you did before this song and this experience? Or was that something that kind of came out of the music that you made about this time? 
Well, I think it was a combination of lots of things. I think it was a combination of the fact that the, the like, in my musical life outside of Groove Armada, I was out by this stage, uh, I'd sort of left the, the jazz stuff behind and I was very much on the house music sort of tip and, you know, machine-based music. Hmm. But when we were, when I was working with Tom, we were drawing much more on funk, soul, disco, you know, the stuff we were sampling was, was performance-based music. And so that was kind of a bit more relevant, but also, yeah, you know, I, I sort of played quite a few different things and I wanted to, I wanted to do that. So it was, it was, um, it was a, it was a combination of both of those things. And Tom came from a, a he played in the funk band as well. So for us, like DJing was DJing. And when you played with a live, you, it was live, you know, mm. so we were really sort of trying to square that circle. But in terms of ingredients, the, the, I think the Groove Amara thing evolved enormously over the years, like to the album Black Light or the new one, Azure the Horizon, which are, you know, for us at least our two best records. Um, and that's much more kind of rock and roll, but it's got that same blend in a different style of, of machines and people, which is, is great when you get that right. How has that evolved over time? Has that changed your setup? Yeah, it, 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 the live thing came came to determine everything really, because the live, the playing, you know, the sort of whole live dance band thing that we got going, that was it was such the sort of mainstay of uh, of of what we were all about, and also everything around it, because we we had this amazing crew of people, not just the the people on on stage, but the the, the technicians and the sound guys and the lighting guys, and there was a very unique atmosphere around Groove Armada mm. on the road, and if you ask any of those. Um, sort of backstage people who've worked for lots and lots of other bands um, over the years, um, they'll tell you the same thing, that there was nothing like being on the road with, with GA, you know, and I think that sort of, um, uh, there was no egos, there was no bullshit, it was just a, a, a fantastic atmosphere and the perfect blend of a total commitment to making the gig as best as it could be and, and we were even down to the very last live gig we did like five minutes before just wondering if we could just get that kick drum sound a fraction better you know that sort of that real kind of attention to detail but but combined with a real enjoyment of of life on the road and all the parties and opportunities for exploration <laughs> that, that that presents and it was a it was a pretty unique blend of those those two things so that became what we were all about and uh, and a lot of the songwriting became unconsciously perhaps unconsciously later just writing tunes that were going to be great fun to to play live mm. you know, and that became a real driving force yeah yeah no it is it's a very special it was a very very special energy and i think it was uh <clears throat> you know so many times you'd see uh artists turning up in in a fleet of sort of tinted windows cars and the and the, they'd come and then they'd leave and they'd go to their individual hotel rooms or, or villas or palaces or whatever and then the, the, the crew would be on, on the bus and it was also divided up in this fairly unhelpful hierarchy I think mm. and um, and we never had any of that and, and, and as a result yeah it was just um, it was just like if you imagine going on the road for 15 years with your best mates uh, <laughs> and uh, and getting regular kicks of intense adrenaline yeah and having the keys to every town that you go to then you can imagine it's you know it, it was a fun period yes absolutely is that something that you miss at all i do uh, i do miss it whilst realizing that i could uh, that the moment has passed mm. uh, and so um it's a qualified nostalgia in that sometimes i'll feel it in the sort of pit of my stomach when i when i someone will be talking about festivals or i'll, I'll see a poster or something like that mm. 
because it was such a, a powerful um, thing that lasted for such a long time. But I, 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 I just know now that if you said, oh, let's get the gang back together and go on the road again and do all of that, we could do that and it would be nice, but it wouldn't be anything like it was. You know, mm. I think you have to accept that everything has its season. Of course, of course. With what you were saying earlier about the egos, being being ego full, I suppose, having that separation is, I think, part of the reason that a lot of people become unhappy when they become, I guess, successful or particularly when they become famous um, because they find it isolating. Like some people have said that they found that the bigger they became, the more space they occupied, actually the smaller they felt within that, there was this bigger gap between the external projection of the persona and the kind of actually how they felt and how they felt separated. So it's, I guess it's really special that you you were able to maintain that and also to feel that you were part of a community as well. Um, well, I think the two go hand in hand. Yeah. You know, and and the, fact that, the fact that, you know, whether, even when we were DJing, there was always two of us. Mm. And we, we, you know, we've, we're very different people in lots of ways, but we've got very similar personalities in lots of ways too. And, and there was always a, uh, a a sort of just um, reveling in the absurdity of the whole thing, you know. <laughs> and, and so there was, I mean, it's a it's, it's an absurd existence a lot of the time. Yeah. And and the contrast between the perception and the backstage reality mm. is is pure comedy, you know. If you if you if you if you embrace it, yeah. And so um, and so that was always that was always the sort of bedrock of the thing. So you never get really caught up in that, um, uh, in, yeah, as you say, in that kind of ego thing of trying to, trying to just live your life as someone that you're not, you know, it's mm. like we'll go on stage and we'll do our thing, but then, but, but around all of that, it was, um, it's just those, all the, all the sort of minutiae, minutiae of life, particularly life on the road, mm. that, um, that are just uh, comedy gold, you know, and just really, we really, we really, we really enjoyed all of that, and and it, and it stopped the whole thing from becoming in any way. Uh, well, it just kept, it just keeps everything nice, you know, and it, and it, and I think that it's a cliche what your grandma would, would 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 say, but you just if you're just nice to people, it really does come back. And what we found was that as we kept doing this thing for years and years, a lot of the people who who were backstage. Uh, at uh, you know making things happen at all the festivals and venues they're, they're often there for years and years you know mm. and they have to deal with an awful lot of attitude yeah uh, all the time and if you just turn up and you're just having fun and yeah uh, and you're a nice person then um, that you get that back in spades over time and, it, and not only does it make the whole thing more pleasant but you actually get things done that need to be done one of the guests we had on the show um, before Catherine Williams I um, said her dad's advice was if you treat famous people like they're normal and normal people like they're famous then you'll be fine I think there's never a true word said were you always drawn to music and creativity oh well I, <clears throat> drawn or, or, or I was just in it you know in, in the sense that my, my, my dad was a, a trombone player a far better one than he, than he gives himself credit for and uh, he he played um Mainly, well, actually, he played in lots of brass bands and Salvation Army bands. But um, you know, uh, later in in life, um, um, by the time we were playing together, he was he was mainly into like you know traditional jazz. So Chris Barber is the his trombone playing hero. So it's all very sort of twelve bar blues based New Orleans kind of. Although there's a bit of he wouldn't like me for saying that because there's a whole other Dixieland thing, which is a whole other thing altogether. But anyway, it's sort of very traditional jazz and based around blues and spirituals and stuff like that. So, 
um, from when I was old enough to to sit upright. I was at a piano, but the first thing I played on the piano was blues. Uh, and then after that, I did all the classical stuff and the grades and all the rest of it. But it, it, it all started from blues. So like jamming in the house was was there from 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 the word go. So that movement from jazz and blues and trombone into dance music was that a natural progression, or was it kind of a rebellion or move against that? I don't think it was a rebellion. It was just uh, it was I was very very lucky um, to be around when I was around because. Uh, you know, when I was 16, it was 1988, which was went down as the, the summer of love in, in dance music circles. And it was right on that cusp of of the explosion of acid house and mm. uh, and house music. And so I was, you know, playing all the blues stuff and I was doing a few paid um, jazz gigs when I was quite young, which was really fun as well, just in like working men's clubs type stuff. Mm. Um, but, you know, as I, as I was started to go out a bit of a weekend, then it was that moment when nightclubs went from being really cheesy nightclubs that hadn't really changed for like 20 years mm. and they just became full of like um you know acid smiley faces and ravers you know and it happened really fast and where i was up near, near leeds um you know had leeds and, and, and manchester you know to the hacienda and all that stuff and, and i was right in the in, in the middle of all that so it was just incredibly exciting and i remember you know, being around the fringes of it, and then going to to one night where Sasha was playing, and he was he was the man, mm. uh, Britain's number one most wanted DJ, as the MC said, they introduced him, and uh, and it was just absolutely electric, you know, and like being in the in the middle of that dance floor, it's like yeah, I just this this is this is where I'm headed. Mm. Was there one particular moment that you remember? Absolutely, yeah, there was. It was in a. A really sort of, again, but symptomatic of the speed of change. There was a nightclub in in Leeds that I think was it was part of the Ritz's chain, mm-hmm. and so it had those horrible sticky carpets, you know, that have just oh, got no. like you know, yeah, years of spilt pints in them, and um, uh, and up until yeah, very close up to that moment would have been you know hosting any kind of like six form disco style thing that you can you can imagine every weekend for, for since forever, yeah. And, and but now it was you know hired out by by rave promoter and Sasha was playing and I remember seeing him walk in just thinking how cool the whole situation was but then there was a uh, he had this brilliant thing where with the dynamics where he would really just let it groove and be quite trippy and just hold it to the point of almost unease in terms of like this needs to go now when's it gonna, you know when's it going to go and be, his timing was amazing and then there was a there was a tune which is called Metropolis by Evolution. And I think it's actually his remix of it. And it's got one of the classic piano breaks of all time. And, and the timing with which he dropped that break um, was, it was, it was impeccable. And so it was just a moment of absolute total unity, which I think house music at its best is pretty unique in being able to, to create. Absolutely. And with you talking about egos, the demolition of the ego, to become, like you say, one. I mean, that's um, that's a lot of the appeal of the ecstatic moment to become ecstasis, which means to be outside of stasis or stillness or your fixed self, um, yeah. and to escape that. I mean, I think so many of our, I don't know, problems as they are perceived come from being trapped in that ego and trapped in that head and 
it sometimes it takes those kind of powerful things like the drop of a you know a piano riff or whatever it takes for you but you, that breaks you out of that situation and there's actually Jung talks about this and he talks about it in the context of death actually um, and the, this is the reason I came came to it because it was kind of lining up with my experiences he had a I think a heart attack and he he described how he felt that in that moment he broke out of this box and he felt like he was in the womb of the infinite and things made sense and things were connected and then as he began to recover he could see every it felt like he could see everyone hanging in their little boxes looking out into the world and he was there in the space that everyone was perceiving and yet gradually as he as he had to come back into the world he could feel himself being put back in the box and it was kind of awful um and it's kind of similar i don't know i've had a similar experience well i think that i've dedicated a lot of my energy to trying to continue to find ways to break out of that but i think an image that that is quite interesting is that i think we tend to try and accumulate more self and more possessions and more cladding like in the example of the celebrity who ends up possessing more and more and more and actually they just end up closed in so much more so disconnected when what we what has value for us is connection outside of the ego and that can be connection to other people to our environment to just to it you know just to the world and the, that feeling of unity and um i think when we recognize that that the most best the best experiences are not from accumulation but from release and like in the example of um, Sasha playing, that you build up the tension and the build up the tension and the build up the tension. And it would be like the the prevailing philosophy would like accumulate more and more tension and more and more bits and parts, but you never let it go because we're afraid to let go. But, um, yeah. you know, you need to have the accumulation, you need to have the tension, but ultimately the, the best part of it is the release. That was very beautifully put. I've got nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Um, how has your relationship with dance music changed? Well, I think, you know, like, like many people of, of my age, um, dance music, as I understand it, I mean, obviously dance music now is, you could argue, is utterly universal and that the vast mm. majority of pop music is dance music. I don't know where that line starts and stops, but, you know, dance music for people of my age is, is, a, is more of a specific thing. But that, that totally defined us, you know, it defined our our life and all the key moments in our life you know whether whether we were performing or making it mm. is, uh, is is neither here nor there really but it was the defining thing uh, and, and and as you say mm. probably because it was all the moments when you're outside the box uh were were, were soundtracked mm. by by that music you know and that's why it's got such a powerful hold i think over people who live through that um, and um, and so that's that you know that's always going to be there. But and even where I'm talking from now is my, my friend's house, and and he was a DJ with me as well. And we've had spent lots of nights and mornings and all the rest of it uh, together, soundtracked by these tunes. And he he, he has some uh, a sort of um, old school acidy house sort of <laughs> radio thing playing early on with those tunes. Yeah. And as soon as that that sound comes on, you know it's it's quite it's quite transformative. Um, um, but so yeah, that's just been the thread that's defined defined all all the key moments in my life, you know. And now, what's 
what's what's nice uh, and strange at the same time mm. is that my uh, my son has now got really into dance music, house music, and so uh, he's now he's now making tunes and and he's getting the same feelings off certain moments in those tunes that I do, and uh, and you know for those moments when it a release, if you like, that you were talking about, you know, there's the uh, the the difference of. Uh, of forty odd years fades away, and we're just two people just loving it when the baseline comes back in. This is this is nice. Mm. I mentioned to someone about Groove Armada and about the fact that you know I knew you and things, and they said that at the river was their wedding dance. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, that is a, is a, is a, is a really, it's a really you know wonderful thing. And when when you uh, uh, and you know, and obviously, a lot of the magic of, of of being on stage is just that that view that you get of uh, of yeah, of, and it's a total symbiosis, and one doesn't work without the other, you know. And it, yeah, and exactly. um, and when when we got got back together and did a few more live gigs, and we said we we're going to do that, then all these messages that were coming in from all around the world saying, "Oh yeah, I'm in New Zealand, but I'm going to get a flight back to to Brixton Academy on the," you know, I mean, it's just and you know, I got married to this, or I met my wife or boyfriend or whatever it might be to this tune or you know whatever there's so many lovely uh messages coming through and uh, and it's and it's and it's really nice that people take the time to write them Mm. uh, because um you can it's not really anything that i would sort of you don't really sort of think about well i don't think about those things and just to kind of it's a nice thing to think that um that you know that it's that you're, you're woven into the fabric of other people's lives in that's some it, ways yeah. is, is really nice exactly that's really beautiful I mean in the small ways that I've had that um, and particularly because obviously some of my work relates to to cancer and experiences with death and the best one yeah one of the best ex- things I've ever, has ever happened to me was um, someone who you know they they were well that they were dying that they showed it to their friend who was dying and, and they were trying to deal with that and they said that it it helped in some way and uh yeah that 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 is um yeah it's amazing i feel like again with the release that in the same way that what feels good is not accumulation but release what feels good is to to give rather than take um which sounds almost prosaic i suppose but you know to to, or, or rather to both give and take in that symbiotic relationship that in and out those kind of waves coming in and out and being able to reci- reciprocate and amplify they amplify each other like you said um, yeah that I, I absolutely agree one couldn't exist without the other and that's something I've, I've struggled with over lockdown definitely is trying to find that invigorating energy and actually I've realised that I have to imagine people <laughs> so I'll sometimes be in my room kind of like hey guys you know this is this song that i'm playing kind of you know imagine that i've got the crowd and actually that that seems to work to some extent it energizes me enlivens it and it gives it it contextualizes it in the same way that things that happened in your history were kind of valuable i suppose because it was contextualized um i think that the music being contextualized in listening being heard as well as being played um because in the same way that colours, as they are, only really exist when they're perceived and they are processed in the brain and becomes colours. I like that classic Zen story, you know, does a uh, a tree that fall in the woods make sound? 
you know yeah. you know is is yeah. the is music even i mean there's there's something qualitatively different about stuff that's played out into an into the void or into an empty dance hall um as to something that's heard yeah absolutely yeah and that he does get into those realms of um sort of brain splitting reflections when they when you get in the tree in the woods scenario <laughs> whether a song is a song until it's <laughs> until it's been heard by someone other than its writer yeah very profound well i mean zen actually talking of breaking out the box the whole principle of zen is is as i understand it to massively oversimplify it but to break out of the mind and the paradox is how can you break out of the mind with the mind and you create a a a uh, aim the aim being to break out of the box of mind and then you inevitably you say well i want to have no self i want to be enlightened i want to you know events you kind of people tell you things like oh we're all one and you do this and you do that and you attempt to do it and um one of the secret tricks although obviously it's been spoiled for all of us now is that you you create the illusion that there's something to get in the same way that you would have a child and you would hold something in your hand and say there's this thing you get and then the person works and works and works to find it and there's this story to paraphrase which is that the student comes to the master and says um, pacify myself pacify myself and the master says okay well show me yourself and I'll pacify it and the, the student says well I don't I can't find myself where is it and then the master says okay well go and meditate for seven years and up in the mountains and come back and show me yourself and he comes back after seven years and the, the master says you know have, show me yourself and the guy says oh I haven't found it I haven't found it and the master says okay well now go and stand in the river for seven years or whatever and comes back and again hasn't found it and he comes back and by this time he's you know middle-aged and he's been doing this for ages and the master says have you found yourself and, and uh, the student says god damn it i've tried everything there's nothing to find there's nothing there why are you telling me to do this there's nothing to find and then the master says yeah exactly you finally got it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great yeah and again it's that's the the arts like jung said you get put back in the box and, and you find that's when we we're talking earlier about different ways of breaking out of the box one of them is the to be overwhelmed by an ecstatic external moment um and then the Zen way is, is trying to make it a bit more sustainable and constant is to base it in silence. Um, but it's it's harder and it's, I don't know. But it, but that's, I mean, that's something that I certainly, I guess I'm trying to cultivate. And a lot of people are trying to cultivate mindfulness. Ironically, I think mindfulness is actually about your empty, having an empty mind emptiness um, or actually having no mind, you know. These words are all yeah. obscuring because words are the problem and this is the problem with Zen is you, the more you talk about it, the more paradoxes you get and you have to ultimately embrace the paradox and, you know, find that resolution between the tension and the piano drop, you know, and, and allow yeah. that to play out and, and to break you out and then, you know, that's I think that's the, the key but it's really, that's a really hard thing to try and cultivate you know it just kind of happens that's that's always the way it is yeah and if you and if you just try looping the piano drop that doesn't yeah. work either. <laughs> that's a very good analogy <laughs> yeah absolutely because yeah it only makes sense in the context of everything else yeah that's that's a, that's a really nice analogy actually that you and you there's so many other elements if we think about music as an analogy for life you need to have the foundation um, you need to have the stability and you need you need the bass player and the bass line, which is kind of steady, 
and there, as well as you needing the kind of extraordinary soloist technical thing and I think there's a tendency inevitably to want to be what you focus on which is the singer and the extraordinary solo but often we can kind of forget the value of of the the regular I suppose normal yeah. component and, and the low bits the, the quiet bits and the tense bits and the you know and the satisfaction of playing those bits and being rock steady which yeah. is a deep satisfaction when you're in, when you're in that groove mm. so when you're when you're playing are you playing the bass are you playing or you do play all sorts of different grooves I played it. I played a well, within the Groove Armada contest. I played the bass mainly, and a couple of tunes where where there's an electronic bass. So I play the the piano, mm -hmm. but the um, definitely the the most well the, the the trombone moment is always a bit of a moment because before I've even picked it up, everyone knows about what's about to happen, <laughs> and it's it's a nice moment of, of togetherness. But yeah, the most kind of visceral moments really are are just when like you and you and the drummer are just on it. And everyone's doing, as you say, everyone's doing the the stuff in the spotlights, and there's just the two of you, just responsible for this kind of, mm. you know, locked in, thudding <laughs> groove, and that's that's a nice feeling. Mm. Another form of losing yourself as a performer. No, totally. That was, I mean, it's, I think yeah, it's, it's James Brown's drummer and bass player were definitely super zen for large elements of their life, otherwise you couldn't do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that, you know, as a, personally, as a songwriter, you know, I, I tend to do, I've always played basically solo. I played in jazz bands as a as a pianist, um, but otherwise I've been solo. And that's something I definitely, I miss and I find um, can be quite difficult. Or like something I, I just kind of wish I could do more would be to just sit back and, and be on stage and be part of that, um, but something a bit more regular. Um, there's a there's this kind of theory to do with, I think, ADHD actually, um, but historically to do with hunters and farmers and that within a society you need to have a distribution um, of the kind of farmers who do things regularly and then you have the hunter will kind of have brief periods of high activity and, uh, and then long periods mm. of not doing as much and you need to have both, but yeah. it, it kind of, that, that's something I've found that can be quite difficult but speaking of which you um your inner farmer has kind of come out in your in your life what an extraordinary segue <laughs> that was that will go down in the in the annals of segues so tell me about i mean they are pretty much well as pretty far apart as far as you can get from the city the club to the farm to the countryside so how did that journey come about yeah i mean it does it i, I do think there's i do think there 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 are well, it depends on on your version of the music and it depends on your version of the farming but there are, there are definitely you know some some similarities i mean, I think about all those three parties that i was referring to in the late 80s and early 90s they were like they were you know it was obviously a great laugh and everything but there was also um a feeling that it was a that it was more than just the music it was it was a, there was a social change thing going on uh and actually you know, 25 years later, I, I I sort of came to the opinion that if you're not in control of your 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 food supply, uh, any feelings of social change are a bit illusory because you're always going to depend on the system that you're you say you don't believe in to feed you. Mm. Um, but uh, but then there's also another comparison I think from you know from music making in that I've I've never worked for anyone. I've always been in a situation where 
you know, it's a question of going off and making something, finding a way to make something happen, whether that's getting on the band on stage or whether that's making albums with the tunes and, or whatever it might be, but just go and find solutions and come back when you've done it. Uh, and there's certain, you know, certainly a very extreme and brutal version of that when I was standing in the middle of a load of fields and needing to mm. find solutions and go off and make stuff happen. But I mean, it basically started because I was coming back from a gig and I picked up an article in the magazine uh, that was talking about industrial food production and what it means for <clears throat> for us and the planet and things which are much more common currency now. And it was just very disturbing reading. And, and I, 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 uh, I was a kind of like casual organic food buyer at the time because I'd read a bit about pesticides, but that was about it. I certainly had no real mm. sense of where food came from. And, and I was vegetarian on a sort of animal welfare basis. And, um, uh, but yeah, so that led to lots of other reading and then, and then the first step being right, well, um, I don't want to depend on this system, so I'm going to start growing vegetables for the family. And that got me into the whole growing thing. And then on, on, on until, yeah, just sort of fell in love with, with the, you know, the, the miracle of plants and soil and all these processes that sustain us and all life on earth. And, uh, yeah it's um it's what's funny is that if the if the technology of growing plants was something we'd invented it would have been the most insane invention ever like someone if this didn't exist and someone said i've invented something which you put it in the ground and then you just put water on it and you just leave it and it just grows and it makes food yeah they'd be like oh my god this is incredible but because it because it's just always been there we don't really value it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, the I mean, the principle there, as we've been saying, is the intelligence of of nature and the intelligence of, I guess, the world to function. I mean, the world functioned functions great without us most of the time. I guess the analogy with music is that when you write songs, like we talked about with the the fine alchemy of this song and not knowing where it came from, it comes. I think it comes from this source of wisdom. Of, which is creativity um, and in the same way that all you need to do as a farmer is to f do the basic kind of structure and use practices which draw out that that wisdom or draw out that process um, I think as a songwriter often the key is to get out of your own way to break out of the box you know and um, just to allow that to flow and give it enough form and expertise of course as well um, but to give that form and to allow that flow to come in and then with live songs even more so you're just providing the structure of the song and you're allowing that energy of creativity the wisdom of nature and of the world as it is to flow through you and then back to the audience and back to you and then as you said to the whole team and then you go on the tour and that energy kind of recycles and becomes the music and reciprocates and the more we let go of that and let go of the process of control while still maintaining of course you know the the position of the songwriter or of the farmer um the more you let go of that the more abundance and life there is and i think for myself i feel that that's where that's where life is life is not so much in the things that we create and that we synthesize and the more we synthesize it the less life it has and um what we if we are looking for life, if we're looking for magic and the magic that enlivens our everyday experience and the creativity, you know, that create, creates music and it creates life and it creates plants and stuff, then we, we need to go to the source. And um, that can be, 
that can be the farm, that can be nature, it can be meditation, it can be love, you know, profound interpersonal love um, is absolutely like an immediate source of that life, children, all these things. And you have these moments of the of the ecstatic, um, which break through the soil, if you will, break through the seed um, and kind of burst out, burst out into that. I mean, it must have been it must have been an amazing feeling when having done all this, taken all these risks and making the farm work and all the problems when you got that first crop, that first proper crop that actually that actually really worked. Yeah, it was an amazing feeling. Yeah, and um, and you know, and it's an on it's an ongoing process. It's by no means, <clears throat> and will never be complete. You know, it's all it's very humbling when you when you go from a world of sort of searching synth patches or Google searches that takes seconds to uh, to realizing that you know as a sort of you know a sort of with with a, with a bit of luck as a physically capable adult you've maybe got 20 harvests left just nothing you know what i mean it's like it's the this it's the time an oak, oak tree takes to blink mm. you know it's just it's very very humbling and the time scales change and so i know that there's more than enough to occupy me from now to whenever the <clears throat> whenever the finish line is mm. but yeah it was a, a very very satisfying feeling and i think one of the things you said just now is 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 just the real nub of it really in that it, this it's the control obsession mm-hmm. uh, and um, and I don't know kind of yeah I suppose you go back into all this there's lots of people have, have, have um, philosophized about where sort of man broke away from nature and uh, and, and, and we, we moved towards control but that is that's the source of so many problems and um, the inability to accept that without intervention things can be better yeah. than with intervention and particularly in the farming world, that's so culturally embedded that it's it's quite hard to escape from. Well, there's I think there's an there's a unquestioned philosophy that more knowledge is good, more control is good, more sanit, more clean, cleanliness is good, and I think we have taken that, and more speed is good, and so we've taken these print more energy is good. We've taken these principles and we're trying to maximise them without really questioning that. Um, it's just implicit that if you can have more, more money, if you can have more speed of the internet, you know, you can grow things faster and more efficiently. That's kind of the way way we should inherently go and be. But I think that's so many of us, particularly living in the city or I don't know, can feel a lack of depth and a disconnection from the magic of life, the mystery of life because like you say there is infinite mystery in how nature works where where life comes from um but there's this kind of philosophy of eradicating mystery but when you look at detective shows or you look at magic the things are valuable and and wonderful because they're because they're unknown because they're mysterious and because they're organic um and I think that's also as children we're filled with awe because the world is mysterious and as we get older we want to control things more we want to make them more known and controlled and understood and maybe that comes from fear or it's just a natural progression or it's a cultural thing I don't know but there is such a value to returning to that mystery and return to that creativity and I think whether it's for me when I'm meditating or I'm songwriting and there's a lot of similarities it's I try and 
come back to the moment where the magic is, where the mystery is, and allow that to to come and, and to relinquish control. That is, again, the Zen problem is how can you try to release control? Um, but that's the fine art we're trying to master, I think, whether it's as farmers or as musicians or as just as people um, in general. Yeah, I'm here, here to that. Yeah. I think that's exactly it. I think that's exactly it. Yeah. Control is the, is the root of many problems. Mm. Coming back to the song, um, one thing I often ask is how your perception of the song has changed over the time since you wrote it. And in your case, I mean, 25 years, it's been your whole career. Um, and, it, you know, not to make you feel old, <laughs> but um, in some ways, you know, looking back in this song is looking back at the very start of that journey. And then out of that came everything that followed. So how, like you mentioned, listening to the song earlier, which you haven't listened to in a while, how do you view that song differently now? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a song that's, uh, I find it hard to think of it as a thing that, that, that Tom and I wrote, mm-hmm. you know. It just feels like a thing that just exists. There is this song there, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, to the point where I remember being in a, a supermarket a long time ago now, 10 or 15 years ago, and it was came on in the, on the radio in the background. I was like, I know this one, definitely not. And it <laughs> took me a while to sort of clock it. So, it's you know, it's... Um, but yeah, you know, I think listening to it now, uh, it's less about the sort of writing process. It's more just it just there's a real collage of images which it which it brings up. You know, that lots of different uh, stages and views from the stage, which are always pretty magical. And picking up the trombone and that moment in the gig, you know, and it is a is is a it's a lovely moment of togetherness, just because it's a kind of real high, but it's a real mellow high. And, and and they're quite hard to get right, you know, on a scale that will work for tens of thousands of people. Mm. Um, the sort of more more energetic highs are a bit easier to, yeah. to master, you know. And so that's that's kind of nice. And it's also quite, you know, nostalgic also because, and this, you know, as you get older, the more things, you know, my dad's about to be 90, so these things become in, into sharper focus. Just the, you know, the, you know, the origins of it, and those riffs on the trombone, they're the riffs that, you know, he and I played together time and time and time again. They're classic mm. spiritual blues, kind of trad jazz soloing riffs, you know. And so um, it, uh, I think as you do get older, you do think about the very beginning a bit more. Mm. And um, and so it brings all that back and and, um, and some of the brass band memories. It actually touches much more on that really early stuff than, than the time which almost seems to be another person when Tom and I are in that country cottage putting bits of wire on the back of a speaker. This podcast is funded by Arts Council England and Youth Music as part of Making Tracks, a partnership project between Trinity Bristol, Basement Studios and Aspiration Creation Elevation. Thank you to everyone who's made this possible, and thank you for listening.